0: Hello and welcome to the podcast for Outlander, episode 108, Both Sides Now. I'm Ronald D. Moore, executive producer and developer of the uh, Outlander television series. And I am coming to you live, well, not really live, from uh, from Los Angeles after the wrap of season one. I am by myself this time out for this particular podcast. My lovely and talented wife is still back in Scotland. Uh, the gen for this evening is 209. And I smoked way too many cigarettes at the rap party and still feeling it so the smoking lamp is out okay uh, episode 108 this was a, a really interesting show to work on um, all the way back to the uh, story break in the writers offices we were looking at um, we knew what the cliffhanger was going to be in the mid-season finale. That was sort of apparent very early on. In fact, in the early sketch of the, the season that I originally pitched to Star, Stars, when we were talking about the 16 episodes, I always said that, well, the mid-season is clearly Jamie in the window at the moment when Jack Randall has Claire been over the table. It was a memorable scene from the book, and it, it was a natural uh, cliffhanger. And it was also roughly halfway uh, through the story and through the book, so it was always sort of easy to say, well, that's the that's the cliffhanger. Um, once we'd set that in motion the, the next question was Okay well What is the body of the episode it's, It takes place clearly uh, After the wedding episode Which is the big You know The thing everyone's been waiting for You know where you're going to Which is the cliffhanger And then what else is that In that episode uh, We were just kicking around ideas In the writer's offices And Somebody Pitched I don't really recall who Somebody said Well what if we went to Frank For the first time And we saw what he's been doing And sort of You know uh, figured out what was happening back at Inverness. And, and we were all kind of taken with that idea because of breaking with the format and break you know breaking up with the show and, and doing something a little different to jazz it up sort of at, at the midseason break. And I was very attracted to it. And I think one of the first things that that came to me in that in that uh, discussion was, hey, what if we'll start on black and we'll just start hearing a telephone ringing? And then we'll fade in and we'll be in the Inverness police station and there's Frank, you know, and we realize he's been there for weeks trying to find his wife and everybody went, yeah, that's cool. And so, so that sort of defined, even before we sat down and broke it, that defined what that episode was going to be. We were going to start on the Frank story and kind of proceed from there in the intercut. Uh, one of the things that sort of, sort of influenced this whole little sequence here in the police station was uh, my wife and I had become fans of Foil's War, which is a great uh, BBC I believe it's BBC uh, television series, following the exploits of a, a detective in London during the Second World War. So the mood and the feel of Foyle's War sort of informed, you know, the where we wanted to be here in Inverness in the, in the post-war world, also in a police station, that sort of, that mood and that sort of texture to what was going on was sort of what we wanted to do here. One of the primary things uh, with Frank was to a, to understand what he had been going through, and B, uh, it, it was also servicing our Claire story, because in this episode, Claire is going to make a run for the stones at Kragna Dunn. You know, it was always sort of a, a shocking turn uh, for the character in the book that when presented with a chance to go home, even though she's just been married to Jamie and she's just starting to fall in love with him and she's having this amazing time for the 18th century, suddenly she sees Kragna Dunn up ahead and she bolts for it. And tries to go home, and I, I always loved that moment of the book because it was really unexpected. I didn't expect Claire to to do that. And um, as we were approaching this episode, one of the things I thought was really critical to the success of it was to remind the audience of Frank. You know, I think that uh, fans of the book tend to uh, say, "Well, I don't care about Frank," and you know, who cares about Frank? Frank's a jerk. He's a this. He's a that. He's a he cheats in later books. Spoiler alert, sorry. If you're, if you're listening to the podcast, there's spoilers of field, so, you know, whatever. But there are definitely fans of the books who, who didn't care about Frank, who were not interested in Frank, and you know, sort of didn't like time spent with Frank. Um, but to me, uh, the relationship with Frank is such a, a core idea to Claire's journey. That I thought it was really important to to shore up his character to make you care about him because she cares about him she 's trying to go home she 's trying to return to this man. she spends a great deal of time and mental energy in the books, even into the second book, worried about him about what 's going to become of him, how her actions might might impact impact him and there is definitely a love she has for this man and it, and when she bolts for Cragna for Dunn you know, here towards the climax, you have to understand why, and the only way to understand why after the wedding show, which is such an intensive Jamie-centric, Jamie and Claire-centric episode, I guess, you know, if you're going to balance that with her wanting to be someplace else, you had to sort of, you know, spend some time with Frank uh, in the audience's mind, especially the audience uh, that doesn't know the books and is is trying to understand uh, uh, Claire's uh, motivation and and her feelings and why she's going to do what she does. This little sequence here was, again, drawn from the book, the character of Human Monroe, which I, was just a fascinating character, really taken with this, this scene in the book. He's a memorable character in the Outlander story, and he's described in rich detail, you know, and, and it was fun to sort of bring him back, or bring him into the story, rather, at this point. It was just sort of a natural thing to do. It's it's part of, of the, the sort of richness and fabric of, of, of Scotland and also in specific... In terms of uh, of jamie frazier and sort of the life he's lived and the the men and the characters that have that he's uh, he's come to know in his life interesting thing in this scene this little picnic out here on the hill is that it's raining like crazy it just kept raining on and off all day long this was one of the more miserable days on the look, on the set uh, i wasn't there for this um, this day uh, but I, they all came back just miserable and bitching and moaning about how awful it was out there that day. And it's one of those, you see there in that shot, the wide shot, uh, as Jamie's crawling around after the arrow hits, you can kind of see, you can see mist rolling in there and you can kind of get some some shots of rain coming down but it's the weird thing on the show, like there you can see the rain, but a lot of times it's raining and it's just this, this intense sheet of rain coming down, like there you saw it really clearly, but a lot of times shot to shots, you know, the rain will come and go and you won't get a sense of just how deeply wet it is. You can kind of, usually the giveaway is their hair, because you can't, we don't really take time to dry their hair too much in between takes, we just kind of live with it. This whole sign language is something the director and the actor came up with, themselves they worked on it uh during pre-production and rehearsed it quite a bit we didn't want it to to be familiar you know as american sign language or any of the more contemporary sign languages this is not a something official that he was taught this is something that he kind of worked out on his own and that jamie had learned along the way so we kind of wanted it to feel a little bit more ad hoc and something that you know the characters themselves had kind of kind of cobbled together there's more you know uh there there was more to this whole scene you know there was the fact that uh Hugh, Hugh himself had just gotten married, and uh, he had conveyed to Jamie you know, some details about his, his rather ample wife that he was very happy with. And there, there was a little bit more byplay back and forth between him and Jamie and sort of catching up on, on their lives. But uh, yeah, some of that got cut at the script stage, and, and all, almost all of it got cut as we got into editorial. The Dragonfly in Amber uh, is, is obviously you know, the title of the second book. And uh, it's, a, it's a small detail to include in, in this scene, but, you know, this is, the show, you know, when when I'm working on the show, there's a lot of times you're looking for little details to put in that are kind of, you know, calling cards for future episodes or future seasons, and some of it is just sort of nods, nods to the fans, and, and some of it is just for fun. So, you know, whenever possible, you kind of work in those kinds of details, because they add to the richness of the environment. On the other hand, I don't feel beholden that I have to include every detail from the book, or that every, or that every story or detail or or you know item in the book is is as important as 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 all the others. You know, you do kind of make creative choices on what you decide to include and what you decide to skip over. And as I've said many times, these are really subjective calls. You know, if someone else was running the show, they would probably make different choices in terms of. What they thought was important and what they thought was was cuttable and you know to each his own so i, I made choices here about things i like to include it, you know from the book about hugh and his backstory i thought it was kind of interesting to sort of get his backstory as you know someone who had been captured and tortured in the time in back in the day and has tongue cut out and i like the little thing about the Gabberlunzies, you know the, the the badges that he wears and the dragonfly in amber and again all that is you know you could do the show without it could have skipped over Hugh Monroe completely. You know, you don't absolutely have to have him, but it was a nice bit of detail. And just by my reading of the book and sort of my navigation of it and and in discussions with the writers is what you know we, we talk a lot about what we like in the book and details that we're interested in, and each of us brings a different perspective to the show. And as you're uh, writing the show and, and editing it together, you're sort of always cognizant of what are the things that that we love, what are the things that we like about this story, and then you then you you kind of make a judgment according to those lights. You're not really trying to hey we have to you know hit a b c d and e for the fans cuz there's not like a master fan checklist and as i've said many times you know running a show is not a democracy it's not really about getting a fan vote or a poll online and what does everybody want to see in the, in the story? You, you read fan, you read fan, uh, remarks, you read their comments, you're interested in what they say, but ultimately it's artistic judgment. You're, you're making a creative choice about what you include in the show, what you don't. And you kind of navigate it by, you know, by your own gut as a storyteller, uh, primarily. And, and, and not so much in terms of trying to please uh, other people. You're always, as an artist on some level, trying to please yourself, and then you're hoping that an audience you know, uh, agrees with you. Nice shot here with the two rings, which is of course how we ended the last the last episode, and that's a great cut. That was a nice uh, transition shot. Anna Forrester, who directed the episode, worked in from ring to ring. I love bringing back the Reverend Wakefield, and you know, saying you know that that's where uh, Frank had kind of taken up residence. You know, we talked amongst ourselves about you know what it, what did the book kind of said or the books had said in subsequent uh, novels about this time in Frank's life. And we kind of like made up a lot of this on our own, but it all seemed plausible. And it was all sort of within within the, the realm of possibility. It seemed logical that he would have, he and the Reverend would have worked together to try to figure out what had happened to Claire, you know, that that, that made com- complete sense. And given the, the way the Reverend did business, it's it's felt like the way they would put a big evidence board together. And they would try to, you know, uh, go at this like two academics trying to solve, trying to solve an academic uh, puzzle. Uh, And enter Roger Wakefield I'm sure fans of the book um, Were looking for Roger back in episode one For you non-fans Roger Wakefield will play a major role um, In subsequent seasons of the show As a major character And in the book Roger was was at the house At the Reverend Wakefield's house Way back at the beginning of the story Um, When I was working on episode one When I wrote the pilot for the show uh, I briefly considered working little Roger into the first episode, but there were so many things to set up and so much story to get going. Um, it was just one too many elements. And so I, I said, all right, I just can't set up Roger, you know, and his relationship and everyone at the same time as everything else. It's too many, too many things Cut kind it. Of just put in the back of my mind, okay, eventually I want to establish that there was a Roger Wakefield. And it really wasn't until we were working on this episode that I realized, oh, well, here's the perfect opportunity. You just, like, introduce him, you know, as if he'd already been there and uh, everybody knows him. It was also great to bring back Mrs. Graham. Uh, They were two of my favorite uh, actors and characters in the series, and I was really tickled at the idea of getting to do a little bit more with with both of their characters. This whole little storyline, obviously, is something that uh, is not in the book that we, that we made up. We were trying to follow. Okay. What has Frank been doing? He's probably posted rewards He's probably you know uh, gone to the police and if he's posted a reward Chances are he's getting false tips and people trying to collect that money and there's probably somebody who's gonna try to Take the money from him that someone's gonna try to you know Do some do some dirty on, on our poor Frank. So then we came up with this story. Like, I think it might have been Ira Bear. Who came up with the idea of sally and that you know it was a ruse to sort of you know knock him out in an alleyway and and take the money and that uh frank was smart enough to see through it like right in this scene you know the thing with the highlander he's already a bit suspicious i think i think he's probably this is not the first time he's been approached and i think he is suspicious of people who are who are seeking a thousand pounds which was a sizable amount of money in those days So I think even at this moment, Frank is a bit suspicious, but hope, you know, hope is uh, ever-blooming and, uh, you know, he wants to find out anything that he can It was interesting, you know, it seemed right that, um, the Highlander would be the focus, you know, that he would focus on the Highlander as the key to the mystery, and that, in retrospect, that seems logical, you know, because the Highlander was there the night before she disappeared, he was suspicious that something had been going on with this guy, and he was one of the few clues that he could probably tie. to the disappearance of his wife. And, of course, in some ways he's right, but uh, only in ways that he cannot possibly understand. Uh, This this scene, the campfire raid, and then, uh, oh, interesting, you know, that Rupert's telling the story of the water horse. This is my nod towards uh, the book again. There was a scene in the book uh, where Claire actually sees the water horse, uh, the, you know, the Loch Ness monster, as it were. Uh, she sees it in the water briefly. There's a sort of enchanting fantasy moment where she sees sees the water horse, and it, it looks at her, and it sort of swims away. As I recall, I haven't read that passage in quite a while. Uh, opted pretty early on not to do it. It felt like that was going to take us one step uh, too strongly towards fantasy in the show, and even though it worked in the book. It was sort of a charming moment. I think it would leave a different impression on you uh, if you saw it on screen in the show. It would suggest that the show was going in toward a more magical direction with, with creatures and monsters and mo- moving uh, sort of away from the territory that we had kind of claimed up until this point, which was to make it a very realistic, you know, very grounded uh, kind of series that just had the one fantastical element which was the the time travel uh, through the stones at crag and dunn and everything else we had played very very real so it, it just felt like uh doing the water horse was not going to work in, in the series but it was nice to have rupert tell the story because again it was sort of a nod in the direction of 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 the source material this sequence was yet another miserable shoot uh it rains on and off through this sequence rather heavily. Um, I, I think in the final editing of this scene, we've cut out most of the most egregious uh, continuity errors. Uh, continuity error in that there are there were takes and uh, shots where it was just pouring rain and other takes where it was not raining at all. And um, as a consequence, we tried to cut around that as best we could so that you weren't constantly aware that, hey, it's raining, hey, it stopped raining. Hey, it's raining, hey, it stopped raining. Uh, it was just one of the one of those nights that you just couldn't do anything about. You are trying desperately to just kind of get through the night because you're out here. It's freezing cold. Uh, the crew called this the mud bowl. And some of the wider shots, you're going to see how muddy. Yeah, you, know, you can kind of see the ground is just saturated and muddy and miserable out here, and it's freezing cold, and it's just it's just horrible. And so we're just they're just trying to complete this sequence and trying to get the. You know, an action sequence is one of the most complicated things that you can do in uh, film and television. There, you can see that it's raining pretty, pretty solidly. Uh, it's it's one of the more complicated things that you can you can film because of the rehearsal time, because of the stunt players, because matching action. You know, camera movement it uh, has to be cut in a certain way. You're you're moving from, which, you know, this side to that side. Where's the sword coming in? Where's the, the shield going up to block? It's very complicated. There's a famous um, uh, uh, test, not even a test, there's a, um, an assignment, I think, that they used to do, I believe it was at the USC uh, uh, f- film school, yeah, USC film. And the, this, uh, there was like a test they would do, I keep calling it a test, it was like a, a, an assignment where they would give, in the editing class, they would give you all these pieces of dailies of a gunfight from Gunsmoke, the classic uh, TV show and it was just all the dailies of, of a, one of their standard gunfights and they would have the students uh, work on cutting it together and there were so many ways you could cut a gunfight together and so many ways, you know, that you could screw it up. And it was a great test of, of uh, editing because, you know, editing is cutting on motion and, and, and emotion and story and it's really a trick to do it in an action sequence like this. Michael Halloran, our editor, one of our editors, I know, slaved very long and hard to to make the grant raid work because there were just so many pieces of it, and not all of them were matching. And it was hampered by the rain and, you know, by just the fact that they were rushing through it at times and the action wouldn't match on different takes. And it was just a mess. And it was like, it took quite a while to to get it to to work as good as it does. Uh, Now, here we have rain that we're actually adding. This is us bringing in rain towers into our our, uh, Inverness village. To, to sort of provide this kind of moody moody piece for Frank. Uh, this fight with Frank, in, with, the, with the thugs in the alley, and then his, you know, his grabbing, the, the, grabbing Sally by the throat, I thought it was really interesting to suggest that there is a part of Jack in Frank, just as when you know, Claire is constantly looking for a bit of Frank in Jack, that there's something in the bloodline, there's something about these men and you know, their relation to one another especially since they look so much like each other, and that is actually a blackjack that he's pulling out of his pocket, which I thought was just a funny little touch. Uh, I like the idea of suggesting a tie between the two men. Uh, one of the things I said early in my very first meeting with Tobias was I was interested in the ways in which Jack and Frank were alike, you know, that there were similarities between these two men, between the, the good guy academic husband and the villainous uh, redcoat uh, soldier. I, I was interested in finding moments of, of similarity and continuity between them. And this is one of those moments where you see a little bit of Jack start to rise out of Frank and that he is capable of violence, he's capable of, of feeling it and, and of enjoying it on some level and almost going too far, you know, almost, almost killing Sally and almost, or beating to, to death the, the guys lying on the ground too. But, this, but the difference, of course, between the two men is that Frank realizes and pulls back and is horrified by, by his own actions. it was a little longer uh, preamble to this scene between uh Wakefield and um and uh Frank here where they talked a little bit more about the nature of evil you know and that Frank had 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 had, had great had difficulty in pulling himself back and on some level I don't remember if he said it but the feeling was there was a part of him that enjoyed it actually I don't even I think I might have cut that before it even got to to stage but that was an early idea I was playing around with was that, that there was a part of him that that found satisfaction in the expression of violence to getting it out, you know, to all his rage had been pent up and his frustrations over the past few weeks had come, come out in that moment with those two men and how, and this is great. Just, you know, the Reverend talking him into, you know, getting realistic about it and face the fact she went off with another guy and you just have to sort of live with that. And how horrible that realization would be for Frank, you know, how crushing that that would be and I you know there was there was there was discussion I remember when we as we worked through the cuts different people had mentioned to me you know it just it's you're making Claire look so bad there's times when you're cutting from Frank's heartbreak and then she's so happy and it just makes it feel like god you know you're feeling bad for Frank and she's having such a great time and I I, I was an advocate of keeping that I I thought that was important I i i wanted you to feel conflicted i wanted you to feel the the pain across the centuries you know in a literal kind of way that here's this man he's suffering and yet our heroine is actually feeling really good and i wanted you to feel conflicted about that about being i i think it's good to make the audience feel uncomfortable every once in a while to make them wonder you know how they should be feeling, and what they should be feeling, and you know to, to sort of cross crosswire their their loyalties every once in a while. It keeps I think it keeps you alive as you're watching. I think it keeps your emotions, you know, alive in the moment. It, it makes you sort of experiencing things in a real time instead of getting sort of comfortable and, and sort of settling into just, well, Claire's always good, Frank's always bad or boring, you know, as some some people would say. Every once in a while, I think it's good to, to mix that up and make you go, oh, God, poor Frank. And, geez, Claire, don't you know that Frank's suffering? It's, it's good. I think that's all, that's all healthy stuff. I think it keeps the characters alive. Uh, this whole little uh, knife-fighting lesson is, um, again... Uh, drawn from the book, uh, we shot more of it. It went on a bit more. There was, uh, I think, it was going to be her. She was going to um, practice on a dummy as well, stabbing a dummy. There were like you know various other little situations, you know, uh, pe- people pretending to ambush her and how she would whirl around and get them in different positions. And you know, if, if somebody attacks you, how to pull your knife out. There was a whole like elaborate thing we talked about doing. Uh, and ultimately just discarded it for time. You can see in that in that two shot of Murtaugh and and Dougal, it's it's definitely raining there pretty solidly and then, as we get out to agus and and Clara, you, you don't see the rain anymore and but you can see that field behind them how muddy it, it was from the night before. I believe in the book it might have been Rupert who gave this this particular lesson but I think in, in the way we've we've kind of outlined the characters you know Angus is not really a, a character from the from the book I and mean, he was was a character named Angus in the book but we've really this particular take is really unique to the series and I think the way we've developed Angus he seemed like the more logical guy um, to sort of teach somebody how to use a knife than than sort of how we've been playing Rupert who you know I'm sure knows how to stab people but um it seemed better and more fun to to have angus do it a lot of this all this little specific stuff is is dialogue again drawn from the book about how to put the knife in and the the, you know the problems of it and a lot of that was drawn directly from the novel Yeah, I love that. The cutting from how happy Claire is and having fun to miserable Frank. You're just feeling it. You're, you're, you're conflicted. You're feeling the, oh, man, I, I'm having fun. but Oh, God, he's suffering. I, I just think that's great. Great stuff. Nice little beat here with the with the suitcase. Uh, the wedding photo. Uh, we did shoot the, the photo of Frank and, and Claire uh, on the same day when we shot their um, there the you know the the, the scene where, where he proposed well when he suggested they elope uh, in the london street back from uh, in episode 107 shot the, the wedding photo on the same day but the the cutaway shot the insert here of the actual photo coming up when he looks down you see his point of view and you see the photograph the insert was actually shot uh, much later because the photograph was not ready in time for for this particular for this particular scene That shot right there. And here we have the, you know, the sex that turns into the attempted rape um, in the Glade. Again, uh, definitely drawn from the book. Um, Never really serious question about whether this was going to be on the show. I think we did have concerns at a certain point about, well, you know, Claire's... She's, she's almost raped twice in the same episode now both sequences do happen in the in the book but in the book there's many you know the way it's laid out there's just separated by more physical pages I don't remember how many uh, I don't think they're separated by much in terms of time in the book I think the chronology is pretty close to the way we've laid it out in that you know they, there's this encounter in the glade and then uh, he went to go see Horox, and then she took off and then she was promptly captured so if there is a Difference And if it took a longer time in the book, it's not by very much. You know, there was some concern about, well, you know, we're doing this twice in the same show. Do we really want to go there? But it was in the nature of the story. Both both sort of uh, assaults were sort of important to the tale. You know, the fact that this encounter had happened, that she had killed this man, that Jamie was held and couldn't help her. She had to do it herself, how that affected her, how that made her how it churned her emotions and her the sense of threat to the 18th century and you know just as she's getting used to it this sort of nightmarish you know reality intrudes on her and then the after reverberations of that were were crucial they were important to the development of the story and then of course the, the jack randall capture you know randall had, that that was in, in his nature and it was also the uh, what he was trying to do at the cliffhanger moment so we we said well let's just do it and let's just play them you know let's play it as best we can play it as honestly as we can and just not shy away from it and just do it you know so we just did it well this dialogue is also drawn from the book Tricky, tricky. Mo- oh, Now, this whole uh, blurring effect here, this was all done. This was something that Anna, the director, came up with. She, we had talked about before the, sh- uh, before the shoot. Uh, she wanted to do this all, this p- specific blurry kind of thing going on here to sort of go out of, you know, to, to, to be in Claire's point of view and this other reality as these things happen, um, sort of to, to have a, a skewed sense of time and place and what's going on. Um, and she, this is this was an in-camera effect. This was not added in post-production later This was a, this was baked in as it were it's, it's a particular technique that is done uh, with the shot, with the sh- not the shutter But with uh, the digital equi- equivalent of the shutter So once she had uh, opted to go in that direction, that's that's basically the way this was going to be and I, I signed off on that. I thought it was cool. I love that shot that sort of you know uh, outlined there on the ridge And then back to Frank. And this was an interesting idea. I really liked the idea that Mrs. Graham was going to tell Frank. It, it felt like the logical thing that had to happen. Once, once we had said that uh, Frank was staying at the Wakefields, uh, it seemed like you had to have Mrs. Graham tell Frank, you know, it it was hard to imagine that she wasn't going to try to tell him something that she she knows all too well what the stories are. She does believe in, you know, the powers up on that hill. She, you know, she's clearly, you know, in, in touch with that whole side of the story. And it seemed to beg her the imagination that she would not, at some point, have to tell Frank. And so it seemed like just before he finally gives up and goes home excuse me, before he gives up and go home, that that would be the the moment that she does it. And I wanted to do it back in the kitchen, which is where she told the the story to Claire in episode one. Except this time with the Reverend sort of, you know, muttering and (laughs) grousing in the background was, was a lot of fun. You know, and the question was, how would Frank receive this? you know i didn't want him to to be too dismissive i didn't want him to roll his eyes as she as she launches into the story i wanted him to hear her out to try to to be as dispassionate as he can this is a man who's desperate this is a man who's who's grasping who's willing to grasp at you know any straw he can find to explain you know the disappearance of his wife other than the idea that she's she's left with another man that's in many ways to Frank is a worse idea than she fell through time, you know as dangerous as falling through time is I think Frank would rather that that that's the truth than the idea that she left him willingly and ran off with some with some Highlander, you know but it is a crazy idea, <laughs> you know, there was never we, there was no way we ever thought Frank was really going to believe it, it was like he would hear her out, try to open his mind for that moment and then just can't ultimately you know just cannot go there i love the way tobias plays this because he he is really trying desperately to give her her due and trying to be as like i said dispassionate as he can but you can kind of see the the disappointment registering in his eyes you know even as he listens and even as he, he tries to to be there. You can just see him going away. The Reverend Wakefield's dubiousness. And, uh, you know, it's an, it's an interesting little card to drop there that Roger overheard. it. Now, wh- how much he remembers as a child this young is, of course, open to uh, interpretation, which gives us a lot of flexibility uh, next season in terms of what Roger remembers of that conversation. And he can remember as much or as little as we want, which is exactly what we wanted to do. Uh, I love that, you know, in the book, Claire has the self-awareness to know that she was going into shock, you know, and that she was almost like sort of outside of herself. I think in the book, she laughs hysterically at some point, Uh, briefly considered playing that. But that's always a little hard uh, in in film to sort of have the, the, the character laughing hysterically out of control sometimes it just rings false and it's not as powerful as sort of understating it on camera some things just read better on the page and they play on screen so I opted not to go not to go there to just make it more internal to just kind of you know she's just she's she's in shock Jamie has to go down and deal with with Dougal you know the guys for a minute and it was you know it was it was more important to have her alone for a second you know it was like we know that he's comforted her and he's, he's, he's worried about her and he's concerned about her but the point was was not so much about Jamie. The point here was was more about Claire and being wanting to get inside of her, her mind. and you know, I love the the idea of it, her mind skipping across, like a stone across the water. Again, it's a great performance by Katrina you know just the look on her face and her body language as she sort of paces you know by herself up there and trying to sort of you know pull it together and and understand where where she is emotionally she's just really she's an amazing actress Really great shot. Love that, that shot of Claire just walking up on the ridge, nice silhouette. Frank leaving behind her suitcase. Well, there's a there's a quick. Uh, not quick there's a little uh, pickup we did we had to go in and, and do a little reshoot action right here where Claire rides into frame uh, that's actually against green screen shot weeks later and so is Jamie whenever you are in this size you know this wide shot is obviously on location and when you jump into those closer shots here and then and uh, not there but the the sort of across the, the two this shot, on Jamie's side and then the matching on her side. These are done against green screen weeks later. This is tough, you know. I don't think this turned out quite as well as I had hoped it would. Um, it's always tricky when you're uh, doing green screen to match an existing scene that was shot at a different location, different time. You're, you're struggling to match the lighting conditions. You're, you know, We shot a plate of the same forest in uh, our visual effects uh, house. Uh, then Compton in the background here uh, through the green screen, but it was tough. It, it's uh, to my eye, it kind of jumps out a little bit, and sort of takes me out of the scene a little bit. I struggled with it again and again to try to make it match, but it was just a, a very difficult set of challenges for our vis- visual effects people. And I, ultimately, I think we get away with it because I don't know if the if the audience, the general audience, is really in tune with it. But it is one of the little things that kind of tortures me in the show. <laughs> a uh, little detail here this radio thing of Patton's death I'm a huge fan of the the movie Patton and, uh, and of the historical character as well, and uh, I was looking to figure out what it, what, I wanted something on the radio that would kind of give it a, a sense of specificity in terms of time, you know, in place, and I was looking around Christmas time in 1945, and, uh, and sure enough, there was the death of George S. Patton, and I was like, oh, that's perfect, so I, I wrote a little, I wrote a little sort of mock newscast sort of announcing Announcing the general's death, which was one of the great ironies of history. You know, the general had survived the Second World War and then died in a car accident just a few months after it ended. And this sequence, this this sequence now that we're we're tuning into here, the beginning of the of the run-up Kragna Dunn, again in the in that very first Conversation about 108. Well, we were just talking about the individual episodes, and we came up with this plan in the writers' room about, okay, well, what could 108 be? And we we're going to play the Frank side and her side, and I think it was in that original uh just a preliminary discussion that we started saying hey you know when she goes up to cragna dunn he should be going up to cragna dunn we didn't even know why at that point we said it'd be so cool if they were both running up the hill at the same time and we were cross-cutting between her going up the hill and he's going up the hill and then you know she's pulled away at the last second by the redcoats and he's left there and and then we pull back and frank is left left by himself on the hill and we didn't quite understand even what the frank story was going to be yet but we knew intuitively or instinctively, either one, <laughs> take your pick. As writers, we knew that that was going to work, that that was going to be great, just as we knew that opening the police station was going to be great, even though we didn't know, you know, how to get from the police station to Craig the What was the journey that took them there? We hadn't even discussed Mrs. Graham at that point or, or the reasoning behind it. There were some some scenes just come, come, literally come to you unbidden. You're just sort of like mulling over things and you have flashes of insight about, hey, this would be a cool sequence or this would be great and this would be fun. And the two of them running up the hill like and Dunn, you know, separated by two centuries and shooting at the same location and going up, uh, you know, in tandem with each other, not in tandem, but, but, you know, cutting between the two of them. We just knew that that was going to be a great sequence. I think in my mind, I'd always seen them going up uh opposite hills like in my head when i wrote it i thought claire would be going up say from left to right climbing up and he would going from right to right to left climbing up and they would be sort of moving towards each other ultimately that's not the way it was shot and that's fine because you know you could shoot it a a variety of ways but it's always interesting what your uh, original mental images are as a writer when you're writing it uh, when you're writing the script i always find that i'm writing a movie in my head and in my head i'm always sort of imagining how the picture is going to going to turn out and inevitably, when it's shot, it's always different. You know, the simple example I always give is when you, you, know, you write a scene and you think a character's going to walk in the door, uh, give a line, and then sit down. And give the next two lines and sure enough when they shoot it they won't come in the door they'll already be inside the door and then they'll sit before they give the two lines or they'll stand up or something it's never the movie is never the same in you know on film as it is in your head and again this one works really well i really like it it's not a criticism they're both going up the same the same slope it was just when i when i wrote it and when i envisioned it originally i thought they would be heading uh, literally towards each other you know instead of sort of going up in, in parallel but this works really wonderfully this is also a great chance to sort of, you know, to contrast the, the color uh, of the two eras, you know, the, the more desaturated look of the 1940s and, and the more uh, saturated look of, of the 18th century is, and is really comes out here because the, the more you go back and go forth, the more you're struck by the, by the color tones and the textures and the differences between the two. It's also a great score, Bear McCrary really pulling and just tearing your heart out in this whole little sequence uh now in the book Claire does not get all the way to the top of the stones uh, on Kragna Dunn I think she falls she falls into either a pool or a river or something and is you know almost drowns her skirts are kind of keeping her from from swimming up to a safety and a hand reaches in grabs her pulls it up and pulls her out of the water and and the hand belongs to a red coat and then she's taken away which is great I mean in the book I was like wow what's what's gonna happen what's gonna happen who's gonna rescue her and oh it's a red coat it was, it was fantastic but in order to do this cross cut between the two it was necessary not to do that you want because you wanted to take her all the way up to the stones the gag if you're going to do this if you're going to have her running up to the stones and him running up to the stones for her to like get waylaid into a pool of water wasn't going to work that was like a totally different thing you wanted her to get really really close you wanted her to right up to those stones and then to be pulled back at the at the last possible second uh this thing where they hear you know the sound kind of carries back and forth across the centuries this started with, uh, you know, in the book when Claire first went to Kragna Dunn and before she went through the stones, she was actually, she could hear like gunfire and she could hear the, the shouting, you know, from the 18th century before she went, she went to the other side. So I thought, okay, well, if that's sort of part of the rules, let's play a little bit of that here. Let's have her hear him. And the question is, does he hear her? And we wanted it to be ambiguous. Like right there, was that her voice or was it the wind? that's exactly what we wanted to play I wanted to leave it ambiguous as to whether or not Frank heard it and I think in his mind he's not sure whether he heard her voice or not because you need to walk away from the scene and and, and there's her nice little detail there it's the shawl that she left that she dropped you know when she first came back uh, from 1945 that was her original shawl lying there but you wanted uh Frank to walk away from the scene feeling ultimately like he must have imagined it. Because if Frank really believed that he heard, literally heard Craig's, uh, heard Claire's voice up at Craigna Dunn, he would never leave. Or he, it would, he would redouble his efforts to get to the, to the bottom of the secret. So he had to walk away from this, feeling like, I thought I heard her for a moment, but I must be crazy. And what am I doing up here? This is insane. I'm embarrassed. I, I'm a fool. I need, to get, I need to go to Oxford and just give up this crazy dream which is exactly what he does this is a great shot that Anna came Anna the director came up with where you see you literally see both sides now it's one continuous shot crossing over and then the the color change and then seeing Frank on the other side I think there were a couple other places that she opted to do that too there were a couple other places where you she kind of kept both in frame and in transition but I thought it was more effective to just do it once there at the end And so that was sort of almost like the end of one story, and now again, we're beginning another. It's similar to sort of the Garrison Commander episode where, you know, the the story with Jack Randall ends, and then you kind of, instead of ending there, you sort of are starting the next chapter. We're sort of doing a similar structural thing here where that chapter kind of ends, and now this this sequence uh, here with uh, Jack Randall is sort of starting the next chapter, but it was necessary in order to get to the, the cliffhanger. I didn't want to end the cliffhanger on whether or not she was going to get to the stones at Craggedon and whether she was going to go through back to 1945. That was like a, a false cliffhanger and not the real jeopardy. This is the the real thing. back to back to Jack Randall. There was more at the head of this scene that I wrote. I wrote a whole interesting little thing. Or I thought it was interesting, where there was a, a a wig sitting on the on a wig stand on the desk, and she kind of, as Jack walked in the room, she just started saying, "I've never understood the powdered wig." And, you know she goes off on it a little bit and says what's the point of it is it is it vanity is it you know conf- you know is it uh, uh what's the deal why, why would a grown man wear something so ridiculous and he says oh it's about and he just starts talking he's like conformity it's a signal it says I understand the social order I I choose to to be part of it and to conform and she's like I don't think you're about conformity it was a great little bit of repartee and it was like establishing that she's going to take charge of the situation and, and put him back on his back foot and he kind of acknowledges it but ultimately it was just chuffa. it, it, it didn't really matter and, and it was kind of just a big long um, uh, prelude to the real meat of the scene in fact we were watching it in the cut and i kept keeping it in the cut and then i got a note from ira bear who said you know this is a nicely written piece of business, but." it's not really part of the show and you know you this is one of those moments where you have to kill your babies <laughs> because that's one of the things we're always talking about as writers is you know uh, when you're doing these episodes uh, you always write something that you fall in love with and then at the end you know either for time for production for for editorial reasons you end up killing your babies you end up killing the thing that, that you love and that you personally might love in the show but may not service the overall story it may not be Uh, really necessary to the tale that you're telling and so it was one of those kill your baby moments and I went okay yeah you're right time to kill my baby (laughs) I love the way um, Katrina plays Claire here because she's playing two things at once her utter confidence that she's projecting to jack that she's got the upper hand on him and yet the disquiet that she may not get away with this and she i think you can see both things on her face through this whole little section which i think is remarkable you know you can see her playing the role you can see her sort of you know playing it all the way she's she's just going flat out she's she's gonna put this guy back. She's going to play, pull this off. She's going to like bluff this guy right out of his boots and she's going to walk out that fucking door. But she knows that she's lying and I think you're getting that from her as well and so I think it's really interesting that an actress is able to convey both things sort of simultaneously and play them both both genuinely. Like right there she's studying him she's thinking great again one of the things i'd always said was necessary in the actress who played claire is she had to be able to watch her think and in that shot you watch her think here you're aware i think you're aware that she's putting on a role she doesn't quite seem like claire it seems like she's somebody else she's trying to be the spy the double agent you know the one who's who's you know unmasking who, unmasking the, the, the true reality for this idiot Jack Randall. She's playing a role, and, and yet the audience can kind of see through it. The audience, because even the audience that doesn't know it's a, a ruse, knows that she's she's up to something. And it's just great. It's a, it's a, it's all subtle stuff. It's how she carries herself. It's a tone of voice. It's the look in her eyes. And look at Tobias. He, it's, it's, rare, it's like, great. It's the only time you really see Jack thrown for a loop. You know, <laughs> when she says that, and he spits out the wine, and then right here... You know, she really disarms him with this thing of tying his stock for him. He really doesn't quite know how to react to that. I think that's just great. You know, Just the look on his face there, he's really a bit at sea, not quite sure what's going on here. <coughs> Jack Randall's office was uh, built on our sound stages. It was a redress of a redress of a redress of various other sets we'd we'd used uh, through the season. And I wanted to find, you know, what was the the way that he tripped that he turned he tripped her up. I don't recall. I'd have to go back and look in the book. I, I think she throws out the Duke of Sandringham thing in the book, and it throws him for a moment. But I think he just kind of pushes past it. And I, I wanted to get a little further in. I wanted her to be really smart, almost get out the door, and I wanted him to lay a trap for her and then snare her in it. Uh, this bit with the rope and the desk is is straight out of the book, as well as the line that's coming up. What kind of kind of a man has a has rope in his desk? And he says a prepared one. That's a nice line. And it is important he says that because God knows he's going to, he could have heard a lot. I do remember reading this passage in the book uh, and literally having no idea how she was going to get out of this situation, which is one of those great things as a reader. You know, you're in the hands of a great storyteller when you get to those moments because, you know, you've read so many stories and you've seen so many stories and you get familiar with plot and you get familiar with narrative and what characters typically do and, you know, twists and turns or what. Writer's thinker twists and turns, and usually go, oh yeah, and then that's going to happen, and sure enough, it does. This was one of those really pleasurable moments where I was reading the book and and had no idea how she was going to get out of this situation. Like, what the hell? He, Jamie has no idea where she is. She's completely at his mercy. What the fuck? And that's like gold. And it was one of those moments when I was reading the book that I said, well, this would make a great TV show because. You could get to that place, and the the audience will have no idea how she's going to get out of this situation either. And whenever you've got them like that, when the audience literally does not know what's going to happen next, it's gold because the audience is leaning forward, they're waiting, and they're just like, they're you know, surprise me, you know, shock me, do something I wasn't anticipating. And that's just that that's the best of all. And, and we had that with with this scene because uh, you know because of what Diana wrote. it was very well constructed. I love coming up here, once Jamie comes through that window, Jack looks up, and he has this look on his face, he smiles, and it's just the greatest look, that's really, when he puts the knife next to her nipple, that is so disturbing, that's just like, so awful, boom, in comes Jamie, there it is, take your hands off my wife, and then this look right here on Jack's face, look at that, he's like, I love it. This is insane and great. And what the hell's going to happen next? I don't know what's going to happen next. Do you know what's going to happen next? No one knows what's going to happen next. I know what's going to happen next. All right. Well, that is the end of 108. Um, I'm sorry it's going to be so long since we're back on the air, but I think it'll be worth it. I hope you'll enjoy the second half of the season as much as you enjoyed the 1st It's uh, been a been pleasure to uh, do this podcast with you. Until next time, next year. Good night and good luck, and thank you very much for your viewership. Uh, It means a lot to all of us, and um, I'll talk to you later. Thank you.